Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. In this episode, we're bringing you another case report from our sister journal, JOSPT Cases. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Lynn McInnes. Dr. McInnes is one of the editors of JOSPT Cases. She is known for her work in the field of diagnostic imaging as it relates to the physical therapy profession. In 1997, she authored Fundamentals of Orthopedic Radiology, the first imaging textbook written by and for physical therapists, one which is used in the majority of DPT curriculums in the U.S. and which is currently in its fifth edition. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us on Joey's PT Insights. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on giving the title and the authors for this episode at the beginning because the title will give away the diagnosis. I really want you to really just build up the, the, the presentation, go through what the physical therapist found, and then we'll kind of find out the diagnosis as we go forward. Lynn, how did this patient present when they came in for their physical therapy evaluation? We have a 61-year-old man, and he works as a cook. He happens to be right-handed, and he went to his doctor because he had hand and arm numbness and tingling, and it was worse on his right side. So his physician refers him to physical therapy. The therapist discovers that this 61-year-old male cook has bilateral arm numbness and tingling, and he's been even dropping items on occasion, and he's having difficulty with fine motor. So he's having trouble buttoning his clothing, using writing instruments, and of course, as a cook, you know, we kind of cringe when we think of him using knives. So the physical therapist starts with the upper quarter screen, right? And Upper quarter screen, we always start with just looking at the patient. And so we've got the forward head, rounded shoulders. They did notice that his gait was normal when he walked in. So that says something too. kind of put that to one side. So they start with cervical spine, range of motion, grossly limited. But again, if you're 61, you're starting to be degenerative, right? We start degenerating after we hit our prime somewhere in the 20s. So that wasn't too alarming. But he reported he had a resting pain of 3 over 10 in his neck, but it increased to 8 over 10 when he looked over his right shoulder. So the first thing you think is radiculopathy. The therapist continues with the upper quarter screen. He does sensory testing and he finds out that there's diminished sensation in C5, 6, and C8 dermatomes. He does his deep tendon reflexes, and they were pretty normal. He tested myotomes. He tested this man's strength, and C7 through T1 were 3 plus over 5, and that's bilateral, so not, no focal weakness is standing out. Then he starts to do some special reflex testing. He chooses to do a Hoffman reflex test. So the Hoffman test is when you flick the middle finger's fingernail and you watch what happens to the index finger and the thumb. Normal if nothing happens. And what's a positive test is if the thumb and fingers flex, like you're going to make an okay sign. So that's a reflexive pathway that is abnormal. So that positive Hoffman sign indicates an upper motor neuron lesion. 
or corticospinal pathway dysfunction, likely due to cervical cord compression. But you should know about 3% of the population has a positive Hoffman without cord compression, right? And as it's not reliable as a standalone, but there's more. So his Babinski then, because now going down the path of let's explore upper motor neuron reflexes, he does a Babinski next. And the Babinski was negative. Next one he does while he was up at the arm was the inverted supernator sign. It's very similar to tapping with your broad side of your reflex hammer on your distal radius, uh, just proximal to the radial styloid. And you're tapping to get a a deep tendon reflex of the brachioradialis muscle. So a normal response is that that muscle contracts. A hyperactive response or abnormal response is when you get elbow extension and finger flexion. So he did have a positive inverted supinator sign. So two positive upper motor neuron signs. So now the physical therapist is thinking cervical myelopathy. So the physical therapist requests an MRI and the MRI demonstrated congenital central canal stenosis with spondylitic disc disease, which is not uncommon in a 61-year-old, right? Those are normal findings. However, it has resulted in spinal cord compression at C3 through C6, enough to cause a signal change in the spinal cord. So we call that myelomalacia or myelopathy. So whenever you have any compression of the cord directly or the vascularity around the cord, enough that it causes an anoxia in the cord, that will show up as a hyperintense signal on the MRI. And that's what the myelopathy is. Unfortunately, the, the outcome was, because this was considered a moderately severe myelopathy, was a decompressive surgery. Okay. So unfortunately, something that PT can't fix. But you know what? We need reminders that PT isn't the, um, the answer for everything every once in a while. Right. It sure isn't. But again, what I love about these cases is it shows therapists doing what they do best. And that is that we do a good physical neuromuscular screen and we can either rule in or rule out certain pathologies and then refer appropriately. And if we can do that much, we're doing our job. So I always tell my students, I don't care if you can read an MRI. I just care that you know when to refer for an MRI. And because MRI is the gold standard for diagnosing myelopathy, this was the correct action to take. Diagnosis of myelopathy does not stand on the MRI alone. The MRI is equally weighted with the clinical exam. But let's go into myelopathy for a second. Can we, do you mind going into kind of like the physiology of it and how it's typically going to present? Is this a typical presentation of it in this case? Or are there other ways that clinicians need to be keeping an eye out for uh, when we're doing like differential diagnoses? So a, a myelopathy, a spinal cord myelopathy is any pathological condition of the spinal cord. And how it manifests is by exhibiting upper motor neuron signs. So the patient will have motor weakness, they'll have positive Babinski, or in general, hyperreflexia. They might have a clonus. The difference between myelopathy and radiculopathy is the same but different. 
So radiculopathy is the pathologic condition of a spinal nerve root. So that compression is outside the central cord on the nerve root. And compression here causes lower motor neuron signs. And those are also motor weakness, but you get hyporeflexia, muscle atrophy and muscle fasciculations. So when we're talking myelopathy, again, we're talking central cord signs. And th there could have been several other tests that could have been done. But as this author cites, when he looked at a diagnostic cluster, he had enough information to confidently refer to radiologist for an MRI. So classically, you look back on the historic literature about cervical myelopathy, I mean, before we had MRI to see direct compression on the cord, basically it was always ataxia and numbness. The funny thing about cervical myelopathy is the progression of it is highly variable and it can be kind of quiet and insidious or it can neurologically decline rapidly. So every patient looks a little different and that's why diagnosis is often missed or delayed because, you know, we see upper motor neuron signs, first of all, in a small percentage of people normally, and then in so many other neurological diseases like ALS or MS or syringomyelia, Guillain-Barre, any spinocerebellar syndromes, all these things can give us those, those weird reflexes. The physical therapist, by doing a good upper quarter screen and, and choosing correctly the right extra tests to do, it, it just shows the value of a good physical therapy examination. Absolutely. The way that it was broken down, the full upper quarter screen was done very well and is a great reminder to, to always be thorough, especially in your neurologic evaluation. Going forward, is cervical myelopathy the treatment for that? Is it always surgery or not? Well, that's the funny thing. Now that we have more people alive over age 60 than under age 60, we're seeing more cervical myelopathy in milder stages earlier on. And we don't really understand the natural history and progression of cervical myelopathy at this point. If you have mild changes, are they going to get moderate and severe? So should you have surgery now? Or is it more dangerous to have surgery than the probability that you're going to develop more serious neurological deficits. So that's being studied now following the course of cervical myelopathy, because pretty much all of us have cervical spine stenosis as we age, but stenosis is not the same as myelopathy. The condition can also be called degenerative cervical myelopathy, cervical spondylitic myelopathy, degenerative cervical myelopathy or cervical spine myelopathy. It always has the word myelopathy in it. But when you say cervical spine stenosis, cervical spine spondylosis, those are degenerative changes that are normal. Try to warn patients when they get a, get a cervical spine radiographic series. I'm going to, I warn them that what it's going to show because it's devastating when they go on to myhealth.com and they read the report and they're looking at all the degenerative disc disease and cervical spondylosis and, you know, spinal stenosis and all the degenerative changes and spurs and those vertebral implants look horrible, but that's normal aging. Because of our aging population, wow, it's some really great studies going on to follow the natural progression of it to see who should be operated on. So right now we operate on anybody who's 
starting to decline neurologically. And basically it's the standard anterior decompression, or sometimes if there's enough compression on the spinal cord, they have to decompress posteriorly also and resect the spinal cord, I'm sorry, the spinal processes and and lamina in order to decompress posteriorly. So usually they put in some, you know, they take out the discs and they, they stabilize, try to regain some height between the vertebra and put in little either a cage, it's called, or plate and screws, some type of fusion to stabilize the area because they're usually doing multi, multi-levels when we're talking about this age group. You mentioned uh, a couple of times the, the cluster. And so talking to physical therapists who are trying to make sure that they're picking up on myelopathy when it presents to them in the clinic. Can you talk a little bit about the, the Cook myelopathy cluster and how we should be interpreting it clinically? What Cook et al. reported was there's a diagnostic cluster for cervical myelopathy, and it's five clinical items, gait deviation, a positive Hoffman reflex, a positive inverted supinator sign, positive Babinski, and age older than 45. So if you have three or more of these findings, you can rule in cervical myelopathy. And that's amazing. The specificity is 0.99. But if you only have one of these findings, you can confidently rule out cervical myelopathy. The longer there is compression on a spinal cord, the when you see the images on the MRI, they're so dramatic. You see a normal gray shade of the spinal cord and where there's been damage, the spinal cord will be hyper intense on, on T2 sequences. And the longer that whiteness or hyper intensity is there, the more permanent the damage is. By identifying these patients early on a clinical exam, referring them appropriately, if they need surgery, they can get surgery, get the pressure off the cord, and hopefully they can reverse the neurological damage that's kind of bonus, but at least you're going to keep the damage from getting worse. They always assume it's going to get worse. And that's an assumption. Again, they're doing studies to to try to uh, track people over several years, large cohorts of patients to see what happens in the non-surgical cervical myelopathy patient. And I think going off of that, something to, to keep in mind is that the, the, the patients that were in development of the Cook cluster, they were all surgical candidates. And so those who present to physical therapy may have earlier cases of uh, earlier progression of myelopathy or may not be surgical candidates might present slightly differently. But I guess that'll probably change. And we'll have more information on that as, as we get more data in coming years. Right. And that's the thing. We, we see a certain percentage of patients who do have cord changes on MRI and they have no symptoms. You know, those people are hard to find to put in the study because they're not going to have the MRI because they have no complaints. But they know that is a variant of normal is to have cervical spine stenosis with myelopathic changes, but no clinical symptoms. And whether they're going to come on in years or not is is the, the key question. So that's where imaging gets really interesting because we were talking about standard MRIs, but they're doing studies on what's called diffusion-weighted imaging. And this gets into the world of molecular imaging. Basically, this type of MRI, it's specialized sequences and specialized software, but it's used to study neurological diseases. 
And this is because diffusion MRI provides in vivo measures that reflect underlying tissue abnormalities in molecular function. So we're looking at the micro architecture of the human body and understanding what's really happening in the spinal cord when we when we have this compression. And, you know, we're guessing, but it's going to be really nice to see it on images and have a predictive value. To sum everything up, I just want to say, I mean, this is a great case to kind of go over red flags to keep an eye out for, key things to include in your objective assessment of someone, and then just a really nice, what PTs actually do in this situation, which is refer. And that's like the most important thing we can do. So what you guys have done also in cases is at the end of this, it has a decision pathway and it it highlights those key things in the exam and the imaging and in the outcome. It takes everything and just even makes it even more succinct. Is there anything else you wanted to add from the case, like big takeaways that you wanted to make sure people uh, got from this? I think that the take-home point for this is because we, especially in America, again, more people are alive over age 60 than under, and the highest incidence of cervical myelopathy is going to be seen in age 70s, right? So we're going to be seeing more of this and it's going to be coming into the clinic with maybe subtle signs. Maybe not everyone has ataxia, but again, in this cluster of five things, you just need three and you already have one. You have over age 45. So an abnormal deep tendon reflex in general, hyperreflexia or an ataxia or any type of cord signs. So no matter what it's going to be, if it is some other neurological disease, it's still going to be diagnosed by MRI. If it was a tumor or a syringo myocele, those are relatively common. It would show up on the MRI. So again, the most critical thing is appropriate referral when your upper or lower quarter screen is showing you neurological abnormalities. And again, we're going to be seeing more and more of this as our population keeps aging. And because we don't know the natural progression of this, because the presentation is different in every person and the development, just it's a continuum of disease progression. The most important thing as we continue to study to understand it is early identification so that we have more information to make decisions on. Lynn, thank you so much for going over this case with us. For the record, the case title is Ruling in Cervical Myelopathy by Diagnostic Cluster. The authors are David Collier, Emily LeBranche, and Lance Mabry. This is in JOSPT Cases, Volume 1, Issue 201, for May 2021, pages 92 to 93. Lynn, thank you again so much. And thank you, as always, for listening to JOSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.